to another episode of Down the Rabbit Hole. Um, I'm not going to really mess around too much here. I'm just going to jump straight into this. Um, this is one that has been a long time coming. Um, I know a lot of you have wanted this for a bit. Um, it just, once my brain kind of got out of this, this thought process... It took a little while to get my brain back into it and get it going. Um, I was going to record this earlier in the week. Life got in the way. So this is going to be my midweek. It's the final episode of the Ted Kaczynski Manifesto. And I'm just going to jump right into it. Hopefully if you're listening to this one, you've listened to the other three episodes on the Manifesto. Um, Yeah, so I'm just going to jump into it because it's been weird. It's been a weird day because where I had it saved on my iPad, gone. The manifesto was gone, could not find it. Um, where I had the link that I had to it for the, the PDF file, gone. So luckily, um, I found it. I had saved it on my computer. Um, it was just a matter of finding where I had saved the PDF on my computer. Then there was a whole other issue that I wasn't signed into Adobe, so I couldn't open the PDF. It was blah, blah. It's been one of those evenings. It's almost like this, this episode just didn't want to happen, but... We're not going to let that happen. It's going to happen. So the episode is going to happen. We're going to go for it. I'm just going to go through it. Um, I don't know how long this episode is going to be because I'm going to go till we're done. I'm finishing out the manifesto this time. This is the final episode on the manifesto. Um, so let's just jump right into it. Obviously, I'm Brandon. Welcome to Down the Rabbit Hole. Thank you for everyone that comes to listen. Let's get to it. All right, so we're in paragraph 171 on the, under the title, The Future. So here we go. But suppose now that industrial society does survive the next several decades and that the bugs do eventually get worked out of the system so that it functions smoothly. What kind of system will it be? Will we consider? We will consider several possibilities. First, let us postulate that the computer scientists succeed in developing intelligent machines that can do all things better than human beings can do them. In that case, presumably, all work will be done by vast, highly organized systems of machines and no human effort will be necessary. Either of two cases might occur. The machines might be permitted to make all of their own decisions without human oversight, or else human control over the machines might be retained. If the machines are permitted to make all their own decisions, we can't make any conjectures as to the results because it's impossible to guess how much how such machines might behave. We only point out that the fate of the human race would be at the mercy of the machines. It might be argued that the human race would never be foolish enough to hand over all the power to the machines. But we are suggesting neither that the human race would voluntarily turn power over to the machines nor that the machines would willfully seize power. What we do suggest is that the human race might easily permit itself to drift into a position of such dependence on the machines that it would have no practical choice but to accept all of the machine's decisions. As society and the problems that face it become more and more complex, and as machines become more and more intelligent, people will let machines make more and more of their decisions for them. Simply becomes machine made decisions will will bring better results than mad man made ones eventually a stage may be reached at which the decisions necessary to keep the system running will be so complex that human beings will be incapable of making them intelligently 
At that stage, the machines will be in effective control. People won't be able to just turn the machine off because they will be so dependent on them that turning them off would amount to suicide. We're already seeing that happen. You know, people become so dependent on their phones and everything else. I've made the example already pretty much in every episode where I've talked about this. Of the, the maps is the easiest one to look at. We're so dependent on maps that if all of a sudden the grid went down right now. And I told you, okay, I need you to be at this address. Tomorrow at noon. I would hope that most of the listeners of this would be able to figure that it figured out with a map. But how many people in the real world? How many other people would be able to figure that out? Um, it comes down to two. If you ever seen the movie Wally, it's telling us right there. It's telling us this is the exact same thing. The people in the movie Wally, if you've never seen it, became so dependent on the machines that they couldn't survive without them. They were fat, gelatinous slobs who couldn't even get out of their recliners because machines did everything, including feed them. They didn't show it, but I'm pretty sure the machines probably wiped them after they took a shit. Because I don't think they could have done it. And that is where this is talking about. Where we just slowly hand things over. It's it's one of those things that we've talked about in the past. Where if you just slowly do it, it's like, you know, the, the old saying my grandma used to say. You don't boil a frog. You don't throw it into the, the boiling water immediately. You slowly heat it up around it. And by the time it realizes that it's boiling, it's too late because it's fucked. That's where we are as a society. And that's what this is suggesting. Right there, he's suggesting that that's one of the possibilities. That it's going to get to one of those points that by the time we realize that the machines are in complete control, we won't be able to turn them off. So that's one possibility. I think, like I said, this was written in 1995. We're in 2024. I feel like we're, we're really, we're getting close to that. I don't think we've gone over the brink yet. I don't think we've gone over the point of no return, but we're getting there. All right, uh, back to the, the reading, paragraph 174. On the other hand, it is possible that human control over the machines may be retained. In that case, the average man may have control over certain private machines of his own, such as his car or his personal computer. But control over large systems of machines will be in the hands of a tiny elite, just as it is today, but with two differences. Due to improved techniques, the elite will have greater control over the masses, social media. And because human work will no longer be necessary, the masses will be super, superfluous, a useless burden on the system. If the elite is ruthless, they may simply decide to exterminate the mass of humanity. COVID. If they are humane, they may use propaganda or other psychological or biological techniques to reduce the birth rate until the mass of humanity becomes extinct, leaving the world to the elite. Or if the elite consists of soft-hearted liberals, they may decide to play the role of good shepherds to the rest of the human race. They will see to it that everyone's physical needs are satisfied, that all children are raised under psychologically hygienic conditions, that everyone has a wholesome hobby to keep them busy, and that anyone who may become dissatisfied undergoes treatment to cure his problem. Of course, life will be so purposeless that people will have to be biologically or psycho psychologically engineered either to remove their need for the power process 
or to make them sublimate, their drive for power into some harmless hobby. These engineered human beings may be happy in such a society, but they most certainly will not be free. They will have been reduced to the status of domestic animals. This is, honestly, I see both of these scenarios happening. This one I see happening as well. We are getting to that. You get the whole thing of inclusiveness, which, yes, people should be included, but they're making such a big deal of it. Um, It's one of the things that I've mentioned before, you know, moving to Texas from the Seattle area was a huge culture shock because in Seattle, everyone goes out of their way to make every, make sure everybody is included. But by doing it, they actually end up excluding people. Don't tell them that. I'm sure I'm going to get hate for saying this, but that's the truth. Down here in Texas, no one gives a shit. Everybody is included because nobody's trying to include everyone. It just happens. It just happens because People don't think of things that way. They're not, they don't look at those labels. And that's what you're getting a lot with the, you know, he's mentioning it here a little bit, but you see it in today's society, the labels, everyone's labeled in a certain way so that they can be put into categories in shepherd. And that's what the liberal, the left side's trying to do. They are trying to shepherd everyone into where they want to be and be the good shepherds. But the only way you can be a good shepherd is if everyone goes along And those who don't go along are labeled and treated and their problem is cured. That right there is scary because once again, he's writing this in 1995 and I think he's hitting 2024 right on the head. That is what's happening now. So much more than it was in 1995. That everyone's trying to get down the same way. That's one of the biggest problems we keep seeing with all the presidential elections. We have candidates that aren't towing the line, so everyone hates them because they're not doing what they think they should be doing. So media propaganda makes everyone hate them. If the propaganda and the media is pointing at something saying, hey, you should have a problem with this and you should hate this, pull your head out of your ass, do some research, and realize why. Because there's a reason behind it. All right, I'm going to get off my soapbox there. Sorry, this is just one of those things that drives me nuts. The way that the media has driven a wedge between society because they use these these tactics that are right here that he's talking about. All right, paragraph 175. But suppose now that the computer scientists do not succeed in developing artificial intelligence so that human work remains necessary. Even so, machines will take care of more and more of the simpler tasks so that there will be an increasing surplus of human workers at the lower levels of ability. We see this happening already. There are many people who find it difficult or impossible to get work because for intellectual or psychological reasons, they cannot acquire the level of training necessary to make themselves useful in the present system. He wrote that in 1995. I would say the exact same thing about right now, but worse. All right, back to it. On those who are employed, ever-increasing demands will be placed. They will need more and more training, more and more ability, and have to be more, even more reliable, conforming, and docile, because they will be more and more like cells of a giant organism. Their tasks will be increasingly specialized, so that their work will be, in a sense, out of touch with the real world. Being concentrated on one tiny slice of reality, the system will have to use any means that it can, whether psychological or biological, 
to engineer people to be docile, to have the abilities that the system requires, and to sublimate their drive for power into some specialized task. But the statement that the people of such a society will have to be docile may require qualification. The society may find competitiveness useful, provided that ways are found directing competitiveness into channels that serve the needs of the system. We can imagine a future society in which there is endless competition for positions of prestige and power, but no more than a very few people will ever reach that top, where the only real power is, very repellent, is a society in which a person can satisfy his need for power only by pushing large numbers of other people out of the way and depriving them of their opportunity for power. One can envision scenarios that incorporate aspects of more than one of the possibilities that we have just discussed. For instance, it may be that machines will take over most of the work that is of real practical importance, but that human beings will be kept busy by being given relatively unimportant work. It has been suggested, for example, that a great development of the service industries might provide work for human beings. Thus, people would spend their time shining each other's shoes, driving each other around in taxi cabs, making handicrafts for one another, waiting on each other's tables, etc. This seems to us a thoroughly contemptible way for the human race to end up, and we doubt that many people would find fulfilling lives in such pointless, busy work. They would seek other dangerous outlets, drugs, crime, cults, hate groups, unless there were, they were biologically or psychologically engineered to adapt them to such a way of life. Right there, go back and listen to that for a second. The people would spend their time shining each other's shoes, driving each other around in taxi cabs. Huh. Driving each other around in taxi cabs. Why? That sounds really familiar. Like that might be something like, I don't know, rideshare services? Right there. He called it. People aren't making money. They need something else to do. I'm going to drive people around in taxi cabs. Making handicrafts for one another. Etsy. Which, I mean, is great. I love some of the crafts that some of my friends make. My friends that make some really cool stuff. But it was one of those things that was a dying thing that's now coming back. Why? Hmm. Who knows? Could it be that he's right in this? The fact that the machines have started taking over jobs and making less for us to do. So we have to come up with new little things to do. Like driving each other around. Making handicrafts. Waiting on each other at tables. That's just normal. Those are all those things that are hmm, really starting to happen. But it makes people go into things, drugs, crime, cult. We're seeing that a lot more. There's a lot more crime. A lot more stuff like that. Hate groups are on the rise. And the propaganda makes the hate groups even more. You know, we got the things now. They keep dividing us even more with the whole the, the fight in Ukraine and, and Russia. Not a lot of division there. Most people are pretty much on Ukraine's side. That's just the way it is. Hamas and Israel. Most people on Israel's side, but a lot of people want to free the Palestines. I'm not going to say which way is right because I really haven't researched enough into that. I mean, I have, but I'm not going to go into that argument right now. So that's a whole other thing where we have, you know, they're telling us which way to go and dividing us more and more. 
causing us to have dangerous outlets that they control? And are they biologically or psychologically engineering us? Hmm. TV shows. Nowadays, you watch anything, um, YouTube, anything like that, they're starting to block out even more and more words. You can't say death. You can't say anything like that could be considered a bad word. The list of bad words, it used to be seven. Now it's like 248. It's insane. Because they're psychologically engineering us to follow along. Biologically, hmm, maybe the needle. Are they changing our biology that way? May not be ours. Maybe our offspring. Who knows? All different things to consider. All right. Back to the reading. Um, paragraph 177. Needless to say, the scenarios outlined above do not exhaust all the possibilities. They only indicate the kind of outcomes that seem to be most likely. But we can envision no plausible scenarios that are any more palatable than the ones we've just described. It is overwhelmingly probable that if the industry, industrial technological system survives the next 40 to 100 years, it will buy that time have developed certain general characteristics. Individuals, at least those of the Burgos type who are integrated into the system and make it run and who therefore have all the power, will be more dependent than ever on large organizations. They will be more socialized than ever. And their physical and mental qualities to a significant extent, possibly to a very great extent, will be those that are engineered into them rather than being the results of chance or of God's will or whatever. And whatever may be left of wild nature will be reduced to remnants preserved for scientific study and kept under the supervision and management of scientists. Hence, it will no longer be truly wild. In the long run, say a few centuries from now, it is likely that neither the human race nor any other important organisms will exist as we know them today. Because once you start modifying organisms through genetic engineering, there is no reason to stop at any particular point so that the modifications will probably continue until man and other organisms have been utterly transformed. Whatever else may be the case, it is certain that technology is creating for human beings a new physical and social environment, radically different from the spectrum of environments to which natural selection has adapted the human race physically and psychologically. If man is not adjusted to this new environment by being artificially re-engineered, then he will be adapted to it through a long and painful process of natural selection. The for former is far more likely than the latter. It would be better to dump the whole stinking system and take the consequences. And see, that's one of those things. That's, this is what's interesting. What he's saying there with the whole idea of changing humans and what they are into a new physical and social environment really makes me think of some of the weird you know, follow me for a minute here. Um, the weird theories that we've talked about in the past that we're not the first society to exist on this planet. That maybe we're just following the, the, the rails of another society that did the same thing. They hit this point and started genetically engineering to a point where they pretty much just disappeared and like engineered themselves out. And then all of their, over time, we have come back. It's 
It's one of those weird things. There's a lot of theories that we aren't the first, that there's been others, that there's weird things. And that's some of the theories we've talked about, some of the weird old buildings. There's the, the, the rock wall or the whatever here in Texas that's buried underground that they keep digging up and reburying. It's a whole other weird one that I ran into the other day. But there's all sorts of weird stuff like that that show that we may not have been the first civilization here. Well, if we weren't, where's the rest of them? Who knows? All right. On to the next section. So the next section is called Strategy, and we're on paragraph 180. The technophiles are taking us all on an utterly reckless ride into the unknown. Many people understand something of what technological progress is doing to us, yet take a passive attitude toward it because they think it is inevitable. But we, FC, don't think it is inevitable. We think it can be stopped. And we will give here some indications of how to go about stopping it. As we stated in paragraph 166, the two main tasks for the present are to promote social stress and instability in industrial society and to develop and propagate an ideology that opposes technology and the industrial system. When the system becomes sufficiently stressed and unstable, a revolution against technology may be possible. The pattern would be similar to that of the French and Russian revolutions. French society and Russian society for several decades prior to their respective revolutions showed increasing signs of stress and weakness. Meanwhile, ideologies were being developed that offered a new world view that was quite different from the old one. In the Russian case, revolutionaries were actively working to undermine the old order. Then when the old system was put under sufficient additional stress by financial crisis in France, by military defeat in Russia, it was swept away by revolution. What we propose is something along the same lines. It will be objected that the French and Russian revolutions were failures, but most revolutions have two goals. One is to to destroy an old form of society, and the other is to set up the new form of society envisioned by the revolutionaries. The French and Russian revolutions failed, fortunately, to create the new kind of society of which they dreamed, but they were quite successful in destroying the old one. We have no illusions about the feasibility of creating a new ideal form of society. Our goal is only to destroy the existing form of society. But an ideology, in order to gain enthusiastic support, must have a positive ideal as well as a negative one. It must be for something as well as against something. The positive ideal that we propose is nature. That is, wild nature. Those aspects of the functioning of the earth and its living things that are independent of human management and free of human interference and control. And with wild nature, we include human nature, by which we mean those aspects of the functioning of the human individual that are not subject to regulation by organized society, but are products of chance or free will or God, depending on your religious or philosophical opinions. Nature makes a perfect counter-ideal to technology for several reasons. Nature, that which is outside the power of the system, is the opposite of technology, which seeks to expand indefinitely the power of the system. Most people agree that nature is beautiful. Certainly it has tremendous popular appeal. The radical environmentalists 
already hold an ideology that exalts nature and opposes technology. It is not necessary for the sake of nature to set up some chimerical utopia or any new kind of social order. Nature takes care of itself. It was a spontaneous creation that existed long before any human society, and for countless centuries many different kinds of human societies coexisted with nature without doing it in an excessive amount of damage. Only with the Industrial Revolution did the effect of human society on nature become really devastating. To relieve the pressure on nature, it is not necessary to create a special kind of social system. It is only necessary to get rid of industrial society. Granted, this will not solve all problems. Industrial society has already done tremendous damage to nature, and it will take a very long time for the scars to heal. Besides, even pre-industrial societies can do significant damage to nature. Nevertheless, getting rid of industrial society will accomplish a great deal. It will relieve the worst of the pressure on nature so that the scars can begin to heal. It will remove the capacity of organized society to keep increasing its control over nature, including human nature. What kind of society may exist after the demise of the industrial system, it is certain that most people will live close to nature because in the absence of advanced technology, there is no other way that people can live. To feed themselves, they must be peasants or herdsmen or fishermen or hunters, etc. And generally speaking, local autonomy would tend to increase because lack of advanced technology and rapid communications will limit the capacity of governments or other large organizations to control local communities. As for the negative consequences consequences of eliminating industrial society, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. There's that phrase that got him caught. Can't eat your cake and have it too. Because he said it that way, that's what his brother noticed. One of the things. There were some other things in there, but that was the big one that he pointed to. That was a very interesting way of saying it. You can eat your cake and have it too. You can't eat your cake and have it too. Where most people would say you can't have your cake and eat it too. He says it differently, and that was very, very weird. Um, I see what he's saying here in some of this. I mean, it's kind of... I mean... It's basically just getting rid of technology and going back to frontier times where we're living by ourselves in smaller communities, which, I mean, I'll be honest, I kind of get, in smaller communities, hunting, fishing, growing our own crops, and surviving on our own into a communal type society where it might be one of those things that maybe, you know, I'm good at hunting but Big D's good at growing plants, he would grow plants and we would trade. I would go hunting, I would take the excess meat that I had from hunting and trade it with Big D for his crops, part of his crops. And we would share and be a communal type living, technically. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And back to the reading. He says after, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. To gain one thing, you have to sacrifice another. Like we said, to gain autonomy, you pretty much have to sacrifice the technology. So, paragraph 186. Most people have psychological or hate psychological conflict. For this reason, they avoid doing any serious thinking about difficult social issues. 
and they like to have such issues presented them in a simple black and white terms. This is all good, and that is all bad. The revolutionary ideology should therefore be developed on two levels. On the more sophisticated level, the ideology should address itself to people who are intelligent, thoughtful, and rational. The object should be to create a core of people who will be opposed to the industrial system on a rational, thought-out basis, with full appreciation of the problems and ambiguities involved, and of the price that has to be paid for getting rid of the system. It is particularly important to attract people of this type, as they are capable people and will be instrumental in influencing others. These people should be addressed on as rational level as possible. Facts should never intentionally be distorted, and intemperate language should be avoided. This does not mean that no appeal can be made to the emotions, but in making such appeal, care should be taken to avoid misrepresenting the truth or doing anything else that would destroy the intellectual respectability of the ideology. This comes into one of the things that we've talked about recently, where we've talked about the fact that, you know, once they don't trust you, they won't trust you. So he's saying here that pretty much for the, the higher level, smarter people, we would want to talk to them in a way and tell them the flat out truth in a truthful way that they understand without misrepresenting. None of the half truths, none of the, the you know, look at this hand while I, I do, you know, stab you in the back with this hand. It's going to be pretty much like just lay it out on the line and let them know because the second they know you're not telling the truth on one hand, they're not going to believe the other one. So that's what he's saying in that. Makes sense. It's one of those things we've talked about multiple times. All right, back to the reading. Uh, paragraph 188. On a second level, the ideology should be propagated in a simplified form that will enable the unthinking majority to see the conflict of technology first nature in an unambiguous terms. But even on this second level, the ideology should not be expressed in language that is so cheap, intemperate, or irrational that it alienates people of the thoughtful and rational type. Cheap and temperate propaganda sometimes achieves impressive short-term gains, but it will be more advantageous in the long run to keep the loyalty of a small number of intelligently committed people than to arouse the passions of an unthinking, fickle mob who will change their attitude as soon as someone comes along with a better propaganda gimmick. However, propaganda of the rabble-rousing type may be necessary when the system is nearing the point of collapse and there is a final struggle between rival ideologies to determine which will become dominant when the old world view goes under. This is the fight that we've been seeing for a couple years now. The propaganda going back and forth from both sides, trying to, you know, make us hate this group, love this group, hate this part of it, love that part of it, where they're basically playing off each other. And the propaganda for both is insane. So back to the reading. 189. Prior to that final struggle, the revolutionaries should not expect to have a majority of people on their side. History is made by active, determined minorities, not by the majority, which seldom has a clear and consistent idea of what it really wants until the time comes for the final push towards revolution. The task of revolutionaries will be less to win the shallow support of the majority than to build a small core of deeply committed people. As for the majority, it will be enough to make them aware of the existence of the new ideology and remind them of it frequently. Though, of course, it will be desirable to get majority support to the extent 
that this can be done without weakening the core of seriously committed people. Any kind of social conflicts helps to destabilize the system. But one should be careful about what kind of conflict one encourages. The line of conflict should be drawn between the mass of the people and the power-holding elite of industrial society. Politicians, scientists, upper-level business executives, government officials, etc. It should not be drawn between the revolutionaries and the mass of the people. For example, it would be a bad strategy for the revolutionaries to condemn Americans for their habits of consumption. Instead, the average American should be portrayed as a victim of the advertising and marketing industry, which has suckered him into buying a lot of junk that he doesn't need, and that is very poor compensation for his lost freedom. Either approach is consistent with the facts. It is merely a matter of attitude whether you blame the advertising industry for manipulating the public or blame the public for allowing itself to be manipulated. As a matter of strategy, one should generally avoid blaming the public. One should think twice before encouraging any other social conflict than the, that between the power-holding elite, which wields technology, and the general public over which technology exerts its power. For one thing, other conflicts tend to distract attention from the important conflicts between power elite and ordinary people, between technology and nature. For another thing, other conflicts may actually tend to encourage technolization. Uh, because each side in such a conflict wants to use technological power to gain advantages over its adversary. This is clearly seen in rivalries between nations. It also appears in ethnic conflicts within nations. For example, in America, many black leaders are anxious to gain power for African Americans by placing back individuals in the technological power elite. They want there to be many black government officials, scientists, corporation executives, and so forth. In this way, they are helping to absorb the African-American subculture into the technological system. Generally speaking, one should encourage only those social conflicts that can be fitted into the framework of the conflicts of the power elite versus ordinary people. Technology versus nature. Sini makes a great point there that we shouldn't be... The problem we're running into is right now we're fighting each other. We're not fighting the system. And that's exactly what the system wants. They want us to fight each other. Because if we're fighting each other, we can't fight them. So, yeah. So, back to the reading. Uh, paragraph 192. But the way to discourage ethnic conflict is not through militant advocacy of minority rights. See paragraph 21 and 29. Instead, the revolutionary should emphasize that although minorities do suffer more are less advantages less disadvantage this disadvantage is of peripheral significance a real enemy is the industrial technological system and in the struggle against the system ethnic distinctions are of no importance the kind of revolution we have in mind will not necessarily involve an armed uprising against any government and may or may not involve physical violence but it will not be a political revolution its focus will be on technology and economics, not politics. Probably the revolutionaries should even avoid assuming political power, whether by legal or illegal means, until the industrial system is stressed to the danger point and it has proved itself to be a failure in the eyes of most people. Suppose, for example, that some Green Party should win control of the United States Congress in an election. 
In order to avoid betraying or watering down their own ideology, they would have to take vigorous measures to turn economic growth into economic shrinkage. To the average man, the results would appear disastrous. There would be massive unemployment, shortages of commodities, etc. When have we seen that? Even if the grosser ill effects could be avoided through superhumanly skillful management, still people would have to begin giving up the luxuries to which they have been become addicted. Dissatisfaction would grow. The Green Party would be voted out of office and the revolutionaries would have suffered a severe setback. For this reason, the revolutionaries should not try to acquire political power until the system has gotten itself into such a mess that any hardships will be seen as resulting from the failures of the industrial system itself and not from the policies of the revolutionaries. The revolution against technology will probably have to be a revolution by outsiders, a revolution from below and not from above. The revolution must be international and worldwide. It cannot be carried out on a nation-by-nation basis. Whenever it is suggested that the United States, for example, should cut back on technological progress or economic growth, people get hysterical and start screaming that if we fall behind in technology, the Japanese will get ahead of us. Holy robots. The world will fly off its orbit if the Japanese ever sell more cars than we do. Nationalism is a great promoter of technology. More reasonably, it is argued that if the relatively democratic nations of the world fall behind in technology, while nasty dictatorial nations like China, Vietnam, and North Korea continue to progress, eventually the dictators may come to dominate the world. That is why the industrial system should be attacked in all nations simultaneously. To the extent that this may be possible, true, there is no assurance that the industrial system can be destroyed at approximately the same time all over the world, and it is even conceivable that the attempt to overthrow the system could lead instead to the domination of the system by dictators. That is a risk that has to be taken, and it is worth taking, since the difference between a democratic industrial system and one controlled by dictators is small compared with the difference between an industrial system and a non-industrial one. It might even be argued that an industrial system controlled by dictators would be preferable because dictator-controlled systems usually have proved inefficient, hence they are presumably more likely to break down. Look at Cuba. Revolutionaries might consider favoring the measures that tend to bind the world economy into a unified whole. Free trade agreements like NAFTA and GATT are probably harmful to the environment in the short run, but in the long run, they may perhaps be advantageous because they foster economic interdependence between nations. It will be easier to destroy the industrial system on a worldwide basis if the world economy is so unified that its breakdown in any one major nation will lead to its breakdown in all industrialized nations. Some people take the line that modern man has too much power, too much control over nature. They argue for a more passive attitude on the part of the human race. At best, these people are expressing themselves unclearly because they fail to distinguish between power for large organizations and power for individuals and small groups. It is a mistake to argue for powerlessness and passivity because people need power. 
Modern man as a collective entity, that is, the industrial system, has immense power over nature, and we, FC, regarding this, regard this as evil. But modern individuals and small groups of individuals have far less power than primitive man ever did. Generally speaking, the vast power of modern man over nature is exercised not by individuals or small groups, but by large organizations. To the extent that the average modern individual can wield the power of technology, he is permitted to do so only within narrow limits and only under the supervision and control of the system. You need a license for everything, and with the license come rules and regulations. The individual has only those technological powers with which the system chooses to provide him. His personal power over nature is slight. Primitive individuals and small groups actually had considerable power over nature. Or maybe it would be better to say power within nature. When primitive man needed food, he knew how to find and prepare edible roots. How to track game and take it with homemade weapons. He knew how to protect himself from heat, cold, rain, dangerous animals, etc. But primitive man did relatively little damage to nature because the collective power of primitive society was negligible compared to the collective power of industrial society. Instead of arguing the powerlessness and passivity, one should argue that the power of the industrial system should be broken, and this will greatly increase the power and freedom of individuals and small groups. Until the industrial system has been thoroughly wrecked, the destruction of that system must be the revolutionary's only goal. Other goals would distract attention and energy from the main goal. More importantly, if the revolutionaries permit themselves to have any other goal than the destruction of technology, they will be tempted to use technology as a tool for reaching the other go- that other goal. If they give in to that temptation, they will fall right back into the technological trap. Because modern technology is a unified, tightly organized system, so that in order to retain some technology, one finds oneself obliged to retain most technology. Hence, one ends up sacrificing only tokens amount of technology. Suppose, for example, that the revolutionaries took social justice <laughs> as a goal. Um, Human nature being what it is, social justice would not come about spontaneously. It would have to be enforced. In order to enforce it, the revolutionaries would have to retain central organization and control. For that, they would need rapid long-distance transportation and communication, and therefore all the technology needed to support the transportation and communication systems. To feed and clothe poor people, they would have to use agricultural and manufacturing technology and so forth, so that the attempt to ensure social justice would force them to retain most parts of the technological system. Not that we have anything against social justice, but it must not be allowed to interfere with the effort to get rid of the technological system. It would be hopeless for revolutionaries to try to attack the system without some modern technology. If nothing else, they must use that communication media to spread their message but they should use modern technology for only one purpose, to attack the technological system. Imagine an alcoholic sitting with a barrel of wine in front of him. Suppose he starts saying to himself, wine isn't bad for you if used in moderation. 
why they say small amounts of wine are even good for you. It won't do me any harm if I take just one little drink. Well, you know what is going to happen. Never forget that the human race with technolo- technology is just like an alcoholic with a barrel of wine. Revolutionaries should have as many children as they can. There is strong scientific evidence that social attitudes are to a significant extent inherited. No one suggests that a social attitude is a direct outcome of a person's genetic constitution, but it appears that personality traits are partly inherited and that certain personality traits tend within the context of our society to make a person more likely to hold this or that social attitude. Objections to these findings have been raised, but the objections are feeble and seem to be ideologically motivated. In any event, no one denies that children tend on the average to hold social attitudes similar to those of their parents. From our point of view, it doesn't matter all that much whether the attitudes are passed on genetically or through childhood training. In either case, they are passed on. The trouble is that many of the people who are inclined to rebel against the industrial system are also concerned about the population problems. Hence, they are apt to have few or no children. In this way, they may be handing the world over to the sort of people who support or at least accept the industrial system. To ensure the strength of the next generation of revolutionaries, the present generation should reproduce itself abundantly. In doing so, they will be worsening the population problem only slightly. And the important problem is to get rid of the industrial system. Because once the industrial system is gone, the world's population necessarily will decrease. See paragraph 167. Whereas, if the industrial system survives, it will continue developing new techniques of food production that may enable the world's population to keep increasing almost indefinitely. With regard to revolutionary strategy, the only points on which we absolutely insist are that the single overriding goal must be the elimination of the modern technology and that no other goal can be allowed to compete with this one. For the rest, revolutionaries should take an empirical approach. If experience indicates that some of the recommendations made in the foregoing paragraphs are not going to give good results, then the recommendations should be discarded. I don't know if I agree with everything he's saying there. To a point, sure. Um, but he is so focused on getting rid of the technological system, he's actually promoting things that he even says aren't good, like the you know populating the world. But once again, he thinks that you know, like he said in paragraph one sixty seven, those things will kind of rectify themselves. So do everything we can to eliminate technology. That's his biggest thing there. No other goals. If you have any other goals, they're going to get in the way of the big one, which is get rid of technology. All right. We're going to continue on. We're on the next section. Two kinds of technology. Paragraph 207. An argument likely to be raised against our proposed revolution is that it is bound to fail because it is claimed Throughout history, technology has always progressed, never regressed. Hence, technological regression is impossible. But this claim is false. We distinguish between two kinds of technology, which we will call small-scale technology and organization-dependent technology. 
Small-scale technology is technology that can be used by small-scale communities without outside assistance. Organization-dependent technology is technology that depends on large-scale social organizations. We're aware of no significant case of regression in small-scale technology. But organization-dependent technology does regress when the social organization on which it depends breaks down. Example, when the Roman Empire fell apart, the Romans small-scale technologically survived because any clever village craftsman could build. For instance, a water wheel. Any skilled smith could make steel by Roman state methods, and so forth. But the Romans' organization-dependent technology did regress. Their aqueducts fell into disrepair and were never rebuilt. Their techniques of road construction were lost. The Roman system of urban sanitation was forgotten. So that not until rather recent times did the sanitation of European cities equal that of ancient Rome. So see, that's the one thing a lot of people say. Technology only goes forward. There's two examples that he just showed where technology actually went backwards. That it took us hundreds of years, if not, you know, thousands of years to get back to where they were because that technology was lost and it did regress all right uh paragraph 209 so the reason why technology has seemed always to progress is that until perhaps a century or two before the industrial revolution most technology was small scale technology but most of the technology developed since the industrial revolution is organization dependent technology Take the refrigerator, for example. Without factory-made parts or the facilities of a post-industrial machine shop, it would be virtually impossible for a handful of local craftsmen to build a refrigerator. If by some miracle they did succeed in building one, it would be useless to them without a reliable source of electric power. So they would have to dam a stream and build a generator. Generators require large amounts of copper wire. Imagine trying to make that wire without modern machinery. And where would they get a gas suitable for refrigeration? It would be much easier to build an ice house or preserve food by drying or picking, as was done before the invention of the refrigerator. So it is clear that if the industrial system were once thoroughly broken down, refrigeration technology would quickly be lost. The same is true of other organization-dependent technology. And once this technology had been lost for a generation or so, it would take centuries to rebuild it just as it took centuries to rebuild it the first time around. Surviving technical books would be few and scattered. An industrial society built from scratch without outside help can only be built in a series of stages. You need tools to make tools, to make tools, to make tools. A long process of economic development and progress in social organization is required, and even in the absence of an ideology opposed to technology, there is no reason to believe that anyone would be interested in rebuilding industrial society. The enthusiasm for progress is a phenomenon peculiar to the modern form of society, and it seems not to have existed prior to the 17th century or thereabouts. In the late Middle Ages, there were four main civilizations that were about equally advanced. Europe the Islamic world, India, and the Far East, China, Japan, and Korea. 
three of those civilizations remained more or less stable and only Europe became dynamic. No one knows why Europe became dynamic at that time. Historians have their theories, but these are only speculation. At any rate, it is clear that rapid development toward a technological form of society occurs only under special conditions. So there's no reason to assume that a long-lasting technological regression cannot be brought about. Would society eventually develop again toward an industrial technological form? Maybe, but there's no use in worrying about it since we can't predict or control events 500 or 1,000 years in the future. Those problems must be dealt with by the people who will live at that time. Alright, the next section, Danger of Leftism. Paragraph 213. Because of their need for a rebellion and for membership in a movement, leftists or persons of similar psychological type often are unattracted to a rebellious or activist movement whose goals and membership are not initially leftist. The resulting influx of leftist types can easily turn a non-leftist movement into a leftist one, so that leftist goals replace or distort the original goals of the movement. To avoid this, a movement that exalts nature and opposes technology must take a resolutely anti-leftist stance and must avoid all collaboration with leftists. Leftism in the long run inconsistent is in the long run inconsistent with wild nature, with human freedom, and with the elimination of modern technology. Leftism is collectivist. It seeks to bind together the entire world, both nature and the human race, into a unified whole. But this implies management of nature and of human life by organized society, and it requires advanced technology. You can't have a united world without rapid transportation and communication. You can't make all people love one another without sophisticated psychological techniques. You can't have a planned society without the necessary technological base. Above all, leftism is driven by the need for power, and the leftist seeks power on a collective basis through identification with a mass movement or an organization. Leftism is unlikely ever to give up technology because technology is too valuable a source of collective power. The anarchist, too, seeks power but he seeks it on an individual small group basis. He wants individuals and small groups to be able to control the circumstances of their own lives. He opposes technology because it makes small groups dependent on large organizations. Some leftists may seem to oppose technology, but they will oppose it only so long as they are outsiders and the technological system is controlled by non-leftists. If leftism ever becomes dominant in society, so that the technological system becomes a tool in the hands of the leftists, they will enthusiastically use it and promote its growth. In doing this, they will be repeating a pattern that leftism has shown again and again in the past. When the Bolsheviks in Russia were outsiders, they vigorously opposed censorship and the secret police. They advocated self-determination for ethnic minorities, and so forth. But as soon as they came into power themselves, they imposed a tighter censorship and created a more ruthless secret police than any that had existed under the czars. 
and they oppressed ethnic minorities at least as much as the czars had done. In the United States, a couple of decades ago, when leftists were a minority in our universities, leftist professors were vigorous proponents of academic freedom. But today, in those of our universities where leftists have become dominant, they have shown themselves ready to take away from everyone else's academic freedom. This is political correctness. The same will happen with leftists and technology. They will use it to oppress everyone else if they ever get it under their control. In earlier revolutions, leftists of the most power-hungry type repeatedly have first cooperated with non-leftist revolutionaries, as well as with leftists of a more libertarian inclination, and later have double-crossed them to seize power for themselves. Robespierre did this in the French Revolution. The Bolsheviks did it in the Russian Revolution. The Communists did it in Spain in 1938, and Castro and his followers did it in Cuba. Given the past history of leftism, it would be utterly foolish for non-leftist revolutionaries today to collaborate with leftists. Various thinkers have pointed out that leftism is a kind of religion. Leftism is not a religion in the strict sense because leftist doctrine does not postulate the existence of any supernatural being. But, for the leftist, leftism plays a psychological role much like that which religion plays for some people. The leftist needs to believe in leftism. It plays a vital role in his psychological economy. His beliefs are not easily modified by logic or facts. He has a deep conviction that leftism is morally right with a capital R. And that he's not only a right, but a duty to impose leftist morality on everyone. Now, let me reread that. And that he has not only a right, but a duty to impose leftist morality on everyone. However, many of the people we are referring to as leftists do not think of themselves as leftists and would not describe their system of belief as leftism. We use the term leftism because we don't know of any better words to designate the spectrum of related creeds that includes the feminist, gay rights, political correctness, etc. movements. And because these movements have a strong affinity with the old left, see paragraphs 227 to 230. Which is one of those things like we've mentioned before. It's We're seeing patterns. And there are patterns that have shown over time and over and over again. How do we know we're just not human beings aren't just one of those patterns? All right, back to the reading. Um, paragraph 229. Leftism is a totalitarian force. Where leftism is in a position of power, it tends to invade every private corner and force every thought into a leftist mold. In part, this is because of the quasi-religious character of leftism. Everything contrary to leftist beliefs represents sin. More importantly, leftism is a totalitarian force because of the leftist drive for power. The leftist seeks to satisfy his need for power through identification with a social movement, and he tries to go through the power process by helping to pursue and to attain the goals of the movement. See paragraph 83. But no matter how far no matter how far the movement has gone in attaining its goals, the leftist is never satisfied. Because his activism is a surrogate activity. See paragraph 41. 
That is the leftist's real motive, is not to attain the ostensible goals of leftism. In reality, he is motivated by the sense of power he gets from struggling for and then reaching a social goal. Consequently, the leftist is never satisfied with the goals he has already attained. His need for the power process leads him always to pursue some new goal. The leftist wants equal opportunities for minorities. When that is attained, he insists on statistical equality of achievement by minorities. And as long as anyone harbors in some corner of his mind a negative attitude towards some minority, the leftist has to re-educate him. And ethnic minorities are not enough. No one can be allowed to have a negative attitude towards homosexuals, disabled people, fat people, old people, ugly people, and on and on and on. It's not enough that the public should be informed about the hazards of smoking. A warning has to be stamped on every package of cigarettes. Then cigarette advertising has to be restricted, if not banned. The activists will never be satisfied until tobacco is outlawed. And after that, it will be alcohol, then junk food, etc. Activists has fought gross child abuse, which is reasonable. But now they want to stop all smoking. When they have done that, they will want to ban something else they consider unwholesome. Then another thing, and then another. They will never be satisfied until they have complete control over all child-rearing practices, and then they will move on to another cause. Which we, once again, see right now. How many things can you not do to your own child, or not do, that we could, you know, years ago? If you even say the wrong thing to your kid, you can get in trouble now. When I was a kid... You said the wrong thing to your parents. They beat you. Was it right? Yeah, probably not. But, I mean, we've taken away any way of punishing children. And now look at what's happening in society. Society is falling apart because nobody understands consequences in any way, shape, or form. And it's insane. And it's just getting worse. It's like he said. It's just getting worse because they just keep moving on to the next one. Okay, back to the reading. Uh, paragraph 220. Suppose you ask leftists to take, make a list of all the things that were wrong with society, and then suppose you instituted every social change that they demanded. It is safe to say that within a couple of years, the majority of leftists would find something new to complain about, some new social evil to correct, because once again, the leftist is motivated less by distress at society's ills than by the need to satisfy his drive for power by imposing his solutions on society. Because of the restrictions placed on their thoughts and behavior by their high level of socialization, many leftists of the over-socialized type cannot pursue power in the way that other people do. For them, the drive for power is only one morally acceptable outlet, and that is in the struggle to impose their morality on everyone. How often do we see that? Do we have that one person that we know within a group, within whatever, who has their set of morality and their morality is what your morality has to be. And if it's not, they're going to beat you mentally, psychologically until you bend to their morality. It's one of the reasons I wanted out to, you know, I was done with the Seattle comedy scene. There are multiple people within that scene, a couple ones really, that are really bad that are trying to impose their morality on the entire group and the entire scene. And it just got to a point it was too too much to fight it. So, so far, Houston isn't like that. Hopefully that doesn't change. So, all right. Paragraph 
222. Leftists, especially those of the over-socialized type, are true believers in the sense of Eric Hopper's book, The True Believer. But not all true believers are of the same psychological type as leftists. Presumably, a true believing Nazi, for instance, is very different psychologically from a true believing leftist. Because of their capacity for single-minded devotion to a cause, true believers are a useful, perhaps a necessary ingredient of any revolutionary movement. This presents a problem with which we must admit we don't know how to deal. We aren't sure how to harness the energies of the true believer to a revolution against technology. At present, all we can say is that no true believer will make a safe recruit to the revolution unless his commitment is exclusively to the destruction of technology. If he is committed also to another ideal, he may want to use technology as a tool for pursuing that other ideal. See paragraphs 220 and 221. Some readers may say this stuff about leftism is a lot of crap. I know John and Jane who are leftist types and they don't have all these totalitarian tendencies. It's quite true that many leftists, possibly even a numerical majority, are decent people who sincerely believe in tolerating others. Values up to a point. And wouldn't want to use the high-handed methods to reach their social goals. Our remarks about leftism are not meant to apply to every individual leftist, but to describe the general, general character of leftism as a movement. And the general character of a movement is not necessarily determined by the numerical pro- proportions of the various kinds of people involved in the movement. The people who rise to positions of power in leftist movements tend to be leftists of the most power-hungry type because power-hungry people are those who strive hardest to get into positions of power. Makes sense, right? (laughs) It would be the power-hungry type that try to get into the positions of power. Um, Yeah, just makes sense. Once the power-hungry types have captured control of the movement, there are many leftists of a gentler breed who inwardly disapprove of many of the actions of the leaders, but cannot bring themselves to oppose them. They need their faith in the movement, and because they cannot give up this faith, they go along with the leaders. True, some leftists do have the guts to oppose the totalitarian tendencies that emerge, but they generally lose, because the power-hungry types are better organized or more ruthless and Machiavellian and have taken care to build themselves a strong power base. These phenomena appeared clearly in Russia and other countries that were taken over by leftists. Similarly, before the breakdown of communism in the USSR, leftist types in the West would seldom criticize that country. If prodded, they would admit that the USSR did many wrong things. But then... They would try to find excuses for the communists and begin talking about the faults of the West. They always opposed Western military resistance to communist aggression. Leftist types all over the world vigorously protested the U.S. military action in Vietnam. But when the USSR invaded Afghanistan, they did nothing. Not that they approved of the Soviet actions, but because of their leftist faith, they just couldn't bear to put themselves in opposition to communism. Today in those of our universities where political correctness 
has become dominant, there are probably many leftist types who privately disapprove the suppression of academic freedom, but they go along with it anyway. Thus, the fact that many individual leftists are personally mild and fairly tolerant people by no means prevents leftism as a whole form having totalitarian tendencies. Our discussion of leftism has a serious weakness. It is still far from clear what we mean by the word leftist. There doesn't seem to be much we can do about this. Today, leftism is fragmented into a whole spectrum of activist movements, yet not all activist movements are leftist. In some activist movements, e.g. radical environmental environmentalism, seems to include both personalities of the leftist type and personalities of thoroughly un-leftist types, who ought to know better than to collaborate with leftists. Varieties of leftists faded, fade out gradually into varieties of non-leftists, and we ourselves would often be hard-pressed to decide whether a given individual is or is not a leftist. To the extent that it is defined at all, our conception of leftism is defined by the discussion of it that we have given in this article, and we can only advise the reader to use his own judgment in deciding who is a leftist. But it will be helpful to list some criteria for diagnosing leftism. These criteria cannot be applied in a cut-and-dried manner. Some individuals may meet some of the criteria without being leftists. Some leftists may not meet any of the criteria. Again, you just have to use your judgment. Seems like kind of a cop out there. They're like, hey, we're going to kind of tell you what they are, but sometimes they may not be, sometimes they might be. You decide. All right, back to the reading. Paragraph 229. The leftist is oriented toward large-scale collectivism. He emphasizes the duty of the individual to serve society and the duty of society to take care of the individual. He has a negative attitude toward individualism. He often takes a moralistic tone. He tends to be for gun control, for sex education, and other psychologically enlightened educational methods for social planning, for affirmative action, for multiculturalism. He tends to identify with victims. He tends to be against competition and against violence. But he often finds excuses for those leftists who do commit violence. He is fond of using the common catchphrases of the left like racism, sexism, homophobia, capitalism, imperialism, neocolonialism, genocide, catchphrases, uh, social change, social justice, social responsibility. Maybe the best diagnostic trait of the leftist is his tendency to sympathize with the following movements. Feminism, gay rights, ethnic rights, disability rights, animal rights, political correctness. Anyone who strongly sympathizes sympathize with all of these movements is almost certainly a leftist. Hmm, interesting. The more dangerous leftist that is, those who are most power-hungry are often characterized by arrogance or by a dogmatic approach to ideology. However, the most dangerous leftists of all may be certain over-socialized types who avoid irritating displays of aggressiveness and refrain from advertising their leftism, but work quietly and obtrusively to promote collectivist values. Enlightened psychological techniques for socializing children, dependence of the individual on the system, and so forth. These crypto-leftists, as we call them, Approximate certain Burgos types as far as practical action is concerned, but different from them in psychological psychology. 
ideology, and motivation. The ordinary Burgos tries to bring people under control of the system in order to protect his way of life, or he does so simply because his attitudes are conventional. The crypto-leftist tries to bring people under control of the system because he is a true believer in a collectivist ideology. The crypto-leftist is differentiated from the average leftist of the over-socialized type by the fact that his rebellious impulse is weaker and he's more securely socialized. He is differentiated from the ordinary well-socialized Burgos by the fact that there is some deep lack within him that makes it necessary for him to devote himself to a cause and immerse himself in a collectivity. And maybe his well-sublimated drive for power is stronger than that of the average Burgos. Once again, not a lot of real definition. I mean, it pretty much speaks of, from what I can tell, like the majority of society now. So, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Next next section. Final note. Paragraph 231. Throughout this article, we've made imprecise statements and statements that ought to have had all sorts of qualifications and reservations attached to them. And some of our statements may be flatly false. Lack of sufficient information and the need for brevity made it impossible for us to formulate our assertions more precisely or add all the necessary qualifications. And of course, in a discussion of this type or this kind, one must rely heavily on intuitive judgment, and that can sometimes be wrong. So we don't claim that this article expresses more than a crude approximation to the truth. All the same, we are reasonably confident that the general outlines of the picture we have painted here are roughly correct. Just one possible weak point needs to be mentioned. We have portrayed leftism in its modern form as a phenomenon peculiar to our time and as a symptom of the disruption of the power process. But we might possibly be wrong about this. Over-socialized types who try to satisfy their drive for power by imposing their morality on everyone have certainly been around for a long time. But we think that the decisive role played by feelings of inferiority, low self-esteem, powerlessness, identification with victims by people who are not themselves victims is a peculiarity of modern leftism. Identification with victims by people not themselves victims can be seen to some extent in the 19th century leftism and early Christianity, but as far as we can make out, symptoms of low self-esteem, etc. are not nearly so evident in these movements or in any other movements as they are in modern leftism, but we're not in a position to assert confidently that no such movements have existed prior to modern leftism. This is a, is a significant question to which historians often give their attention. All right, so I'm going to run through. There's a couple notes here real quick, and then that's pretty much it. So that's really the manifesto. There's a couple quick things where there's notes, though. So I'm going to read through his notes real quick, little notes. Um, so notes. Paragraph 19, we're asserting that all or even most bullies and ruthless competitors suffer from feelings of inferiority. So so they believe that all bullies, ruthless competitors, stuff like that, suffer from inferior a feeling of inferior, inferiority, which I agree with. Paragraph 25, during the Victorian period, many over-socialized people suffered from serious psychological problems as a result of repressing or trying to repress their sexual feelings. Freud apparently based his theories on people of this type. Today, the focus of socialization 
has shifted from sex to aggression. And some people, it's sex and aggression. Um, paragraph 27, not necessarily including specialists in engineering or the hard sciences. Paragraph 28, there are many individuals of the middle and upper classes who resist some of these values, but usually their resistance is more or less covert. Such resistance appears in the mass media only to a very limited extent. The main thrust of propaganda in our society is in favor of the state of values. The main reason why these values have become, so to speak, the official values of our society is that they are useful to the industrial system. Violence is discouraged because it disrupts the functioning of the system. Racism is discouraged because ethnic conflicts also disrupt the system. And discrimination wastes the talents of minority group members who could be useful to the system. Poverty must be cured because the underclass causes problems for the system and contact with the underclass lowers the morale of the other classes. Women are encouraged to have careers because their talents are useful to the system. And more importantly, because by having jobs, women become better integrated into the system and tied directly to it rather than to their families. This helps to weaken the family. Uh, solidarity. The leaders of the system say they want to strengthen the family, but they really mean is that they want their family to serve as an effective tool for socializing children in accord with the needs of the system. We argue in paragraphs 51 52 that the system cannot afford to let the family or other small-scale social groups be strong or autonomous. In paragraph 42, it may be argued that the majority of people don't want to make their own decisions, but want leaders to do their thinking for them. There is an element of truth in this. People like to make their, their own decisions in small matters, but making decisions on difficult fundamental questions requires facing up to psychological conflict. And most people hate psychological conflict. Hence, they tend to lean on others in making difficult decisions. But it does not follow that they like to have decisions imposed upon them without having any opportunity to influence those decisions. The majority of people are natural followers, not leaders but they like to have direct personal access to their leaders. They want to be able to influence the leaders and participate to some extent in making even the difficult decisions, at least to that degree that they need autonomy. It's pretty much we see this all the time. People don't want to make the decisions, but they want to feel like they were part of the decision-making process. Very true. Paragraph 44, some of the symptoms listed are similar to those shown by caged animals. To explain how these systems arise from deprivation with respect to the power process, common sense understanding of human nature tells one that lack of goals whose attainment requires effort leads to boredom, and that boredom long continued often leads eventually to depression. Failure to attain goals leads to frustration, lowering of self-esteem. Frustration leads to anger, and anger to aggression, often in the form of spouse or child abuse. It has been shown that long-continued frustration commonly leads to depression, and depression tends to cause guilt, sleep disorders, eating disorders, and bad feelings about oneself. Those who are tending towards depression seek pleasure as an antidote, hence insatiable hedonism and excessive sex with perversions as a means of getting new kicks. Boredom, too, tends to cause excessive pleasure-seeking since, lacking other goals, people often use pleasure as a goal. Apparently, there's a diagram somewhere. It says see accompanying diagram. The diagram must be on the next page. Uh, the foregoing is a simplification. Reality is more complex. And of course, deprivation with respect to the power process is not the only cause of the symptoms described. By the way, when we mention depression, we do not necessarily mean depression that is severe enough to be treated by a psychiatrist. 
often only mild forms of depression are involved. And when we speak of goals, we do not necessarily mean long-term, thought-out goals. For many or most people, through much of human history, the goals of a hand-to-mouth existence, merely providing for oneself and one's family with food from day to day, have been quite sufficient. I think we've lost that a little bit. In society where now most things are handed to us, I mean, really, I don't have to go out and hunt food. I can go to the grocery store and buy food. I could go right now down the street and within four miles of me, there's five different taco places. I could go get tacos right now. I kind of want tacos now, but <laughs> I could go get tacos right now and have it made for me and hand it to me. And all I have to do is walk up, say, give me tacos, hand the money. Next thing I know, I'm stuffing tacos in my face. That's not how it used to be. We used to have a purpose. We used to have to kill the food, skin the food, butcher the meat, cook the meat, harvest the, the grain, make the bread, make the tortillas, do all that stuff, make the food. Now we don't have to do any of that. So a lot of our purpose and goals have disappeared. And without that, I think people start losing and start feeling like they have no purpose. And that's where depression comes in. All right. Um, in paragraph 52, a personal exception made, maybe made for a few passive and word looking groups, such as the Amish, which have little effect on the wider society. Apart from these, some genuine small scale communities do exist in America today. For instance, youth gangs and cults. Everyone regards them as dangerous. And so they are because the members of these groups are loyal primarily to one another rather than to the system. Hence, the system cannot control them or take the gypsies. The gypsies commonly get away with theft and fraud because their loyalties are such that they can always get their other gypsies to give testimony that proves their innocence. Obviously, the system would be in serious trouble if too many people belong to such groups. Some of the early 20th century Chinese thinkers who were concerned with modernizing China recognized the necessity of breaking down small-scale social groups such as the family. The Chinese people needed a new surge of patriotism, which would lead to a transfer of loyalty from the family to the state. According to Li Huang, traditional attachments, particularly to the family, had to be abandoned if nationalism were to develop in China. Paragraph 56, yes, we know that 19th century America had its problems and serious ones, but for the sake of brevity, we have to express ourselves in simplified terms. Paragraph 61, we leave aside the underclass, we are speaking of the mainstream. Paragraph 62, some social scientists, educators, mental health professionals, and the like are doing their best to push the social drives into group one by trying to see to it that everyone has a satisfactory social life. Paragraph 63 and 82 is the drive for endless material acquisition, really an artificial creation of the advertising and marketing industry. I had talked about this. This was something that we talked about in a, an episode not too long ago. When they, you know, yeah, so this has been talked about. Did they propaganda make it so we artificially created the need and the want for material things? Hmm. Who knows? All right. Back to it. Certainly there's no innate human drive for material acquisition. There have been many cultures in which people have desired little material wealth beyond what was necessary to survive or to satisfy their basic physical needs. Australian Aborigines, traditional Mexican peasant culture, 
some African cultures. On the other hand, there have also been many pre-industrial cultures in which material acquisition has played an important role. So we cannot claim that today's acquisition-oriented culture is exclusively a creation of the advertising and marketing industry. But it's clear that the advertising and marketing industry has had an important part in creating that culture. The big corporations that spend millions on advertising wouldn't be spending that kind of money without solid proof that they were getting it back in increased sales. One member of FC met a sales manager a couple of years ago who was frank enough to tell him, our job is to make people buy things they don't want and don't need. He then described how an untrained novice could present people with the facts about a product and make no sales at all. While a trained and experienced professional salesman would make lots of sales to the same people. This shows that people are manipulated into buying things they don't really want, which we know. I mean, that's something we've talked about. In paragraph 64, the problem of purposelessness seems to have become less serious during the last 15 years or so because people now feel less secure physically and economically than they did earlier. And the need for security provides them with a goal, but purposelessness has been replaced by frustration over the difficulty of obtaining security. We emphasize the problem of purposelessness because the liberals and leftists would wish to solve our social problems by having society guarantee everyone's security. But if that could be done, it would only bring back the problem of purposelessness. The real issue is not whether society provides well or poorly for people's security. The trouble is that people are dependent on the system for their security rather than having it in their own hands. This, by the way, is part of the reason why some people get worked up about the right to bear arms. Possession of a gun puts that aspect of the security in their own hands. And that's an argument that happens every day. Should our security be in our hands or in the hands of the government? That's a fun argument. Uh, paragraph 66, conservatives' efforts to decrease the amount of government regulation are of little benefit to the average man. For one thing, only a fraction of the regulations can be eliminated because most regulations are necessary. For another thing, most of the deregulation affects business rather than the average individual. So that its main effect is to take power from the government and give it to private corporations. What this means for the average man is that government interference in his life is replaced by interference from big corporations, which may be permitted, for example, to dump more chemicals that get into his water supply and give him cancer. The conservatives are just taking the average man for a sucker, exploiting his resentment of big government to promote the power of big business, which we're seeing. We've seen that more and more. Um, Less government, more big business, more big pharma, more stuff like that. So... Uh, paragraph 73, when someone approves of the purpose for which propaganda is being used, in a given case, he generally calls it education or applies it in some similar euphemism. But propaganda is propaganda regardless of the purpose for which it is used. Paragraph 83, we're not expressing approval or disapproval of the Panama invasion. We only use it to illustrate a point. Uh, paragraph 95, when the American colonies were under British rule, there were fewer and less effective legal guarantees of freedom than there were after the American Constitution went into effect. Yet there was more personal freedom in pre-industrial America, both before and after the War of Independence, than there was after the Industrial Revolution took hold in this country. We quote from Violence in America, Historical and Comparative Perspectives, edited by Hugh Davis Graham and Ted Robert Gurr. Chapter 12 by Roger Lane, pages 476-478, the progressive heightening of standards of proprietary and with it the increasing reliance on official law enforcement, 
were common to the whole society. The change in social behavior is so long-term and so widespread as to suggest a connection with the most fundamental of contemporary social processes, that of industrial urbanization itself. Massachusetts in 1835 had a population of some 660,940 people. 81 of that percent of that was rural, overwhelmingly pre-industrial native-born. Its citizens were used to considerable personal freedom. Whether teamsters, farmers, or artisans, they were all accustomed to setting their own schedules, and the nature of their work made them physically independent of each other. Individual problems, sins, or even crimes were not generally cause for wider social concern. But the impact of the twin movements to the city and to the factory, both just gathering force in 1835, had a progressive effect on personal behavior throughout the 19th century and into the 20th. The factory demanded regulatory, regulatory regularity of behavior, a life governed by obedience to the rhythms of clocks and calendar, the demands of foreman and supervisor. In the city or town, the needs of living in a closely packed neighborhoods inhibited, inhibited many actions previously unobjectable. Both blue and white collar employees and large establishments were mutually dependent on their fellows. As one man's work fit into another's, so one man's business was no longer his own. The results of the new organization of life and work were apparent by 1900 when some 76% of the 2,805,346 inhabitants of Massachusetts were classified as urbanites. Much violent or irregular behavior, which had been tolerable in a casual, independent society, was no longer acceptable in the more formalized, cooperative atmosphere of the later period. The move to the cities had, in short, produced a more tractable, more socialized, more civilized generation than its predecessors. If copyright problems make it impossible for this long quotation to be permitted, then please change note 16 to read as follows. Ooh. When the American colonies were under British rule, there were fewer and less effective legal guarantees of freedom than there were after the American Constitution went into effect. There was more personal freedom in pre-industrial America, both before and after the War of Independence, than there was after the Industrial Revolution took hold in the country. In violence in America, historical and comparative perspectives edited by Hugh Davis Grant and Ted Robert Gurr, Chapter 12 by Robert Lane, does explain how in pre-industrial America the average person had greater independence and autonomy than he does today, and how the process of industrialization necessarily led to the restriction of personal freedom. So it's kind of one of those things. It's very true. It's one of the things that we talked about not too long ago when we talked about the beginnings of the school system. It's right there. Same thing. The beginning of the school system was to pe get people prepared to work in factories and to follow the clock and do things the way they were supposed to. All right. Paragraph 117, apologists for the system are fond of citing cases in which elections have been decided by one or two votes, but such cases are rare. How many have we had recently of that, where there's been arguments on the votes and who won and by how many and recounts and everything else? It's becoming more and more common. Paragraph 119, today in technologically advanced lands, men live very similar lives in spite of geographical, religious, and political differences. The daily lives of a Christian bank clerk in Chicago, a Buddhist bank clerk in Tokyo, and a communist bank clerk in Moscow are far more alike than life any any one of them is like that of any single man who lived a thousand years ago. These similarities are the result of a common technology. Alsprague de Camp. 
The Ancient Engineers, Valentine Edition, page 17. The lives of the three bank clerks are not identical. Ideology does have some effect, but all technological societies, in order to survive, must evolve along approximately the same trajectory. Paragraph 123, just think an irresponsible genetic engineer might create a lot of terrorists. Uh, paragraph 124, for a further example of undesirable consequences of medical progress, suppose a reliable cure for cancer is discovered. Even if the treatment is too expensive to be available to any but the elite, it will greatly reduce the incentive to stop the escape of carcinogens into the environment. It's very true. There's no carcinogen. If the carcinogens are just going to give me cancer that can be cured, who cares, right? Paragraph 128, since many people find paradoxical the notion that a large number of good things can add up to a bad thing, we illustrate with an analogy. Suppose Mr. A is playing chess with Mr. B, Mr. C, and a grandmaster. Is looking over Mr. A's shoulder. Mr. A, of course, wants to win his game, so if Mr. C points out a good move for him to make, he is doing Mr. A a favor. But suppose now that Mr. C tells Mr. A how to make all of his moves. In each particular incident, instance, he does Mr. A a favor by showing him his best move. But by making all of his moves for him, he spoils his game. Since there's no point in Mr. A's playing the game at all if someone else makes all his moves. Situation of modern man is analogous to that of Mr. A. The system makes an individual's life easier for him in innumerable ways but in doing so it deprives him of control of his own fate which is what we're seeing more and more uh, paragraph 137 here we are considering only the conflict of values within the mainstream for the sake of simplicity we leave out the picture outsider values like the idea that the wild nature is more important than human economic warfare Paragraph 137, self-interest is not necessarily material. Self-interest, it can consist in fulfillment of some psychological need, for example, by promoting one's ideology or religion. Paragraph 139, a qualification. It is in the interest of the system to permit a certain prescribed degree of freedom in some areas. For example, economic freedom with suitable limitations or restraints has proven effective in promoting economic growth, but only planned circumscribed limited freedom is in the interest of the system the individual must always be kept on a leash even if the leash is sometimes long paragraph 143 we don't mean to suggest that the efficiency or the potential for survival of a society has always been inversely proportional to the amount of pressure or discomfort to which society subjects people that certainly is not the case there's good reason to believe that many primitive societies subjected people to less pressure than european society did but European society proved far more efficient than any primitive society and always won out in conflicts with such societies because of the advantages conferred by technology. Uh, paragraph 147, if you think that uh, more effective law enforcement is unequivocally good because it suppresses crime, then remember that crime is defined by the system. is not necessarily what you would call a crime. Today, smoking marijuana is a crime. And in some place in the U.S., so is possession of an unregistered handgun. Tomorrow, possession of any firearm, registered or not, may be made a crime. And the same thing may happen with disapproved methods of child rearing, such as spanking. In some countries, expressions of dissident political opinions is a crime. And there is no certainty that this will never happen in the U.S., since no constitutional political system lasts forever. If society needs a large, powerful law enforcement establishment, there is something gravely wrong with that society. It must be subjecting people to severe pressures if so many refuse to follow the rules. 
or follow them only because forced. Many societies in the past have gotten by with little or no formal law enforcement. That's another fun argument right now. Uh, paragraph 151, to be sure, past societies have had means of influencing human behavior, but these have been primitive and of low effectiveness compared with the technological means that are now being developed. Paragraph 152, however, some psychologists have publicly expressed opinions indicating this, their contempt for human freedom, and the mathematician Cloud Shannon was quoted in Omni as saying, I visualize a time when we'll be, when we will be robots what dogs are to humans, and I'm rooting for the machines. Paragraph 154, there is no science fiction. After writing paragraph 154, we came across an article in Scientific American according to which scientists are actively developing techniques for identifying possible future criminals and for treating them by a combination of biological and psychological means. Some scientists advocate compulsory application of the treatment which may be available in the near future. See Seeking the Criminal, criminal Element by W. Wyatt Watt Gibbs, Scientific American, March 1995. Maybe you think this is okay because the treatment would be applied to those who might become violent criminals, but of course it won't stop there. Next, the treatment will be, treatment will be applied to those who might become drunk drivers. They endangered human life too. Then perhaps to peel who spank their children, then to environmentalists who sabotage logging equipment, eventually to anyone whose behavior is inconvenient for the system. Paragraph 184, a further advantage of nature as a counter-ideal to technology is that in many people, nature inspires the kind of reverence that is associated with religion. So that nature could perhaps be idealized on a religious basis, it is true that in many societies, religion has served as a support and justification for the established order. It is also true that religion has often provided a basis for rebellion. Thus, it may be useful to introduce a religious element into the rebellion against technology, the more so because Western society today has no strong religious foundation. Religion nowadays either is used as cheap and transparent support for narrow, short-sighted selfishness, some conservatives use it that, this way, or even is cynically exploited to make easy money by many evangelists or has degenerated into crude irrationalism. Fundamentalist Protestant sects, cults, or simply stagnant Catholicism, mainline Protestantism. The nearest thing to a strong, widespread, dynamic religion that the West has seen in recent years has been the quasi-religion of leftism. But leftism today is fragmented and has no clear, unified, inspiring goal. Thus, there is a religious vacuum in our society that could perhaps be filled by religious focus on nature and opposition to technology. But would be a mistake to try to concoct artificially a religion to fill this role. Such an in invented religion would probably be a failure. Take the Gaia religion, for example. Do its adherents really believe in it, or are they just play-acting? If they're just play-acting, their religion will be a flop in the end. It's probably best not to try to introduce religion in the conflict of nature based technology unless you really believe in that religion yourself and find that it arouses a deep, strong, genuine response in many other people. Paragraph 189, assuming that such a final push occurs, conceivably the industrial system might be eliminated in a somewhat gradual or piecemeal fashion. See paragraphs 4, 167. And note four. 
Paragraph 193, it is even conceivable remotely that the revolution might consist only of a massive change of attitudes toward technology, resulting in a relatively gradual and painless disintegration of the industrial system. But if this happens, we'll be very lucky. lucky. It's far more probable that transition to a non-technical society will be very difficult and full of conflicts and disasters. Paragraph 195, the economic and technological structure of a society are far more important than its political structure in determining the way the average man lives. See paragraphs 95, 119, and notes 16 and 18. Paragraph 215, this statement refers to a particular brand of anarchism. A wide variety of social attitudes have been called anarchist, and it may be that many who consider themselves anarchists would not accept our statement of paragraph 215. Should be noted by the way that there is a nonviolent anarchist movement whose members probably would not accept FC as anarchist and certainly would not approve of FC's violent methods. Paragraph 219 Many leftists are motivated also by hostility, but the hostility probably results in part from a frustrated need for power. And then paragraph 229. It is important to understand that we mean someone who sympathizes with these movements as they exist today in our society. One who believes that women, homosexuals, etc. should have equal rights is not necessarily a leftist. The feminist, gay rights, etc. movements that exist in society have their particular ideology tone that characterizes leftism. If, and if one believes, for example, that women should have equal rights, it does not necessarily fall that one must sympathize with the feminist movement as it exists today. So basically he's saying he's not against feminism, just feminism as it is today. So that's it. That's the whole manifesto. We, we've gone through it all. All four episodes. And this one is almost two hours long. This has been a long, long episode. I'm not sure how much more I can really say on this. Um, I kind of went through this one a little faster with a lot less commentary than I did in some of the others because I knew there was a lot to get through. A lot to get through. What I'm going to say is, is what I've been saying the whole time. I will never agree with their movements. I will never agree with their, with Ted's actions. But it's a weird catch-22 because I don't agree with his actions at all. There should have not have been violence. He should not have blown anybody up. And that was the wrong answer. But would we be having this conversation and reading this manifesto? Would anybody have ever seen this manifesto if they didn't? And he makes some great points. He really does. Like I said, if you really want to have a fun test with someone, and I've done it with a couple people now, and it's every time they're like, he, you know, he goes off the rails in a couple spots, but th this person's really making sense. Then you're like, it's Ted Gazinski. It's it's the Unabomber's manifesto. And they're like, oh, no, no, I, I agree with none of this. No, you agree with it. You just don't agree with him. And that's the hard part. His actions are always going to make it tough to argue that he has a point even though he makes some really good ones there's some ones where he goes off the rails he does in a few spots but he really does have a point and me and big d have pushed this it was kind of one of the things where he talked about like when he had his house built that there's so many things that are on you know wi-fi and everything like that it's even like you know and i'll be honest in my house my thermostat is because where I bought my house, it was one of the requirements it had to be. My my thermostat is wirelessly connected to the you know the company. 
So they can technically turn it down if they want to. They can turn down my, my you know, my AC or whatever to, to save power, which is complete crap. I have found a way to make it so they can't. But um, <laughs> um, it's one of those things where you get that, you know, and it's insane. The technology, how they've taken over and everything else and how we're so reliant on it. Um, but I do really think. If we could get away from the technology a little bit, it would be better for our society. I think it would make things different. Um, and I do honestly think it is possible that we are not the first society, that maybe this has happened before. Um, one, There's a great series of books that I read when I, read when I was younger, a sci-fi series that my mom gave me. It was called The Dragon Riders of Pern. And in the series, it's basically a colony that was sent out to another planet. And the colony ship, basically, like, they land it, they... I can't remember. It's been 30 years since I read the books, but they either landed or crashed it on the planet. I can never remember. But they end up basically as technology quits working and they never get any supplies from anyone else. They're left there on their own. They forget about the technology. It's kind of one of those things. They have like the, the stories that have been passed down through the generations, but they're now like you know, 20 generations down or whatever, and everything has changed and they don't remember everything the correct way. And that's what I could almost see happening is something similar to that to a society. If we got rid of technology, we would have to go back to the way it was, where we would have smaller groups and colonies because there would be less ability to communicate. Should we do that? I don't know. It's an argument to, to, to have. Um, like I said, I, I feel that Ted has some points. But he went the wrong way about it. All right. Thank you all for listening. That's enough for me. I'm going to go get some sleep. Sorry that this one didn't come out sooner. But it took me a while to, to really wrap my head and get back into this one. Um, thank you all. If you have any comments or suggestions, let us know. You can email us down the RH at protonmail.com or you can send me a message on instagram mr underscore b underscore 666 thank you all and i'll talk to you soon